With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good night, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. like to thank W.J. Pierce for creating and performing our music. Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live, where your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. Thank you for joining us. All right, before we introduce tonight's guests, we have some good news. Uh, the Crimson Corset, book one in my Vampires of Crimson Cove series, is now available in audiobook. Uh, here's Tamara to tell you more about the macabre goings-on in the little mountain town of Crimson Cove. Yeah, The Crimson Corset, book one in Alistair's Vampires of Crimson Cove series, follows Cade Coulter, who arrives in a small mountain village expecting peace and quiet, but he quickly learns that after the sun sets and the fog rolls in, the quaint little tourist town takes on a whole new kind of life and death. Renowned for its wild parties and history of debauchery, the Crimson Corset nightclub looms on the edge of town, inviting patrons to sate their most depraved desires and slake their darkest thirsts. Proprietor Gretchen Van Trees has waited centuries to annihilate the old world vampires and create a new race, a race that she alone will rule. When she realizes Cade has the key that will unlock her plan, she begins laying an elaborate trap that will put everyone around him in mortal danger. The streets are running red with blood, and as violence and murder ravage the night, Cade must face the darkest forces inside himself, perhaps even abandon his own humility, humanity too, in order to protect what he loves. <laughs> all right. The Crimson Corset and all of our books are also available in ebook and paperback at Amazon and everywhere books are sold. All right, uh, you are listening to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. And again, we are your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. You can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com and tamarathorne.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com, or if you tweet, our handles are at CrossAlistair and at Thorne. You can visit our Haunted Nights Live page on Facebook, or find us on Instagram at, at thornandcross, or my own Instagram account, which is at official underscore Alistair Cross. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at AuthorsOnTheAir.com. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. 
And uh, tonight, uh, I am excited because we have a recurring guest, one of our favorites, a great storyteller with a, not just a great story, but really good stories to tell. Uh, Sylvia Schultz is the author of 44 Years in Darkness, uh, also Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital, and other books of true ghost stories. She has spent the past 20 years working in a library, slowly smuggling words out into out in her pockets day by day to build a book of her own. She's it's so cute. So yes. <laughs> she sits in dark haunted places so you don't have to. She lives in a short she lives a short ten ten minute motorcycle right away from the haunted asylum that features in so many of her books. She considers it the highest privilege to share the incredible compassionate history of the Peoria State Hospital. After battling an intense lifelong fear of the dark, Sylvia decided to become a ghost hunter. As a paranormal investigator, she has made many media appearances, including a part in the Ghost Hunters episode, Prescription for Fear, about the Peoria State Hospital. She is also the writer, director, producer, and host of the True Ghost Story podcast, Lights Out, which is available on YouTube, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and anywhere else great podcasts are found. But tonight, she's here to talk about a fascinating crime that took place back in 1880. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, Sylvia. How are you? I am absolutely well. It's been a crazy couple of weeks, but I get to sit down and talk with Tamara and Alistair, and Yay. I could not possibly be happier about that. This I've been looking forward to this for, for a week at least, oh, <laughs> it's oh, just a relaxing. Yeah, we're going to talk about true crime and blood and gore and everything. And it's the most relaxing part of my week. Right, <laughs> lovely. Right, right. too. <laughs> yeah. it really is. <laughs> I love being around kindred kindred spirits. It's it's so fun. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Yeah. So it's yeah. So, so the uh, the story of the. The Donnelly murders. It's often called the story of the Black Donnellys. That's that's just a, a name that they that the, the popular press made up just to make things even spookier. The book mm-hmm. I'm working on now is called Days of the Dead. It's a year of true ghost stories. So I got to glut myself on ghost stories, and if one had a date attached to it, I wrote it down in a little calendar, and pretty soon I had a calendar filled with ghost stories and started writing a ghost story for every day of the year and on february thank you february 3rd 1880 the story i have for that is the donnelly murders and at first the only information i found was their neighbors hated them so they killed them and you and I, we, we've talked about this before. I mean, my neighbors mm-hmm. hate me, so, so oh, I right. know yeah. there's, there's, I know there's more to the story than this. So I started doing some research, and this is an amazing story. So sit down, strap in, and hang on because this is going to get weird. These oh, are yeah. shocking murders. <laughs> this is a, this we is like these shocking. murders have left have left a on Canadian history that lasts even till today. On the night of February 3rd, 1880, years of violence boiled over into this this just spasm of intense violence. When it was over, five people were dead in two houses, one of which was in flames. How did this happen? 
So wow. the main wow. players <laughs> in the story are James and Johanna McGee Donnelly. Now, James Donnelly, uh, they both grew up in Tipperary, Ireland. They were both Roman Catholics. And James Donnelly took a fancy to Johanna McGee. James was a stagecoach driver, and Johanna McGee was on his route, and they fell in love. Now, Johanna's father was not really jazzed about having a stagecoach driver for a son. They were rough characters, and he was like, no, my daughter can do better than that. So he forbade them to get married. So they decided to elope. And they got married Mm -hmm. and got hitched, and then Johanna got pregnant. So James decided to go to the New World to seek his fortune. He ended up in Canada. He ended up in uh, an area around Lucan and London. So whenever I say London in the story, it means London, Ontario, not London, England. Ah, So let's get this out of the way because it's going to come up a couple times. So he ends up in Ontario trying to seek his fortune, and Johanna is left behind. And eventually she gives birth to James Jr. And she goes to her father, and she's like, you know, I'd really like to have my husband's help raising this child. And her father said, "Eh, okay, I'd, I'd rather have my grandchild have a father figure in his life than than not. So, yeah, go ahead. You have my blessing. Go and find your husband in the new world. So Johanna goes to London and um, starts searching for James, and she finds him in a bar. She walks into a bar with baby James Jr., who is about two years old at this point, and James looks up, and he's like, where did you come from? And Johanna's (laughs) like, where'd you go? (laughs) They were reunited happily. And they, uh-huh. uh, they, they left, they, they settled in London for a while, London, Ontario, where their second son, William, was born in 1844. Uh, William had a birth defect. He had a twisted foot. So his name growing up was Clubfoot Will. You are going to love the nicknames in this story. They're just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So they had Clubfoot Will. And after Will was born, they settled in Biddle's Township near Lucan on what's called the Roman Line. Uh, The Roman Line was so-called because that was the line going between London and Lucan that all the Roman Catholics settled in. And a lot of them were from Tipperary. So a lot of these, a lot of these feuds from Ireland as to Protestant versus Catholic got completely transplanted over into Canada. So all of these ancient feuds were still brewing under the surface in the New World. Now, James and Johanna, James was kind of a short little dude, and he had curly, dark brown hair, kind of a good-looking, chummy-looking little guy. Johanna must have had something going for her because she was several inches taller than James, uh, face like a battle axe. <laughs> she, 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 was, she was known for having a very strong jaw and a very, very large, deep jaw, and several, mm-hmm. several of her sons inherited that. So she was quite the figure to be reckoned with. But James wow. saw something in her. They got married. They had seven sons. 
during this time that they were settling on this land. Now, they, Frontier Canada worked just about the same way as Frontier America did. There were plots of land that the government had set up for people to settle on and just chop down the trees and start farming this land. Uh-huh. And a lot of the Irish settlers in Biddulph Township here, they weren't really keen on filing paperwork. They just saw a good <laughs> plot of land and said, hey, here looks good. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so so the, uh, the Donnellys ended up squatting on 100 acres of land. The land was owned by Patrick Fogarty, who sold it to John Grace, who never bothered registering it. And John Grace eventually sold it to Michael Marr. Now, in 1857, there's a guy named Patrick Farrell who leases that 100 acres from Michael Marr. And he was not at all happy that James Donnelly had already put his butt on the land and started clearing it. He's like, no, 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 this is my land. I leased it. Honestly, you guys are just squatting on it. So the case went to court. And the court decided that James had made a lot of improvements. He'd built a cabin on the land. He had cleared a lot of the land. He was raising crops. He was doing well for himself. So the court decided that um, they gave James the north 50 acres, and they let Patrick Farrell have the south 50. Patrick Farrell was really not happy about this. He thought he should have gotten the entire 100 acres. And up. I mean, he he did lease the entire 100 acres, and he should have gotten it, but Donnelly made a lot of improvements to it, so I could see it going either way. Mm-hmm. So on June 27, 1857, the other way that Frontier Canada worked like Frontier America did is that they had bees. They had corn husking bees and barn raisings and and quilting bees for the women and stuff like that, where all the neighbors would get together and help many hands make light work. So on June 27, 1857, there was a barn raising, and someone had the absolute poor foresight to include both James Donnelly and Patrick Farrell in the invitation to the (laughs) barn raising. Uh-oh. Where oh, there no. was booze, <laughs> where there was lots of booze <laughs> to lubricate the, the, uh, the, the process of raising this barn. <laughs> so so w- one thing led to another. There was a lot of drinking going on. And one thing to, led to another. There were words exchanged. And Patrick Farrell picked up a, a handspike which is a, a, a long piece of metal that you use to you know, shove into a, a log and use it to lever it into a different place. Very okay. useful tool. And he <laughs> went after James Donnelly with it. Well, James Donnelly picked up a hand spike of his own and hammered it into Patrick Farrell's head. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> left side of his head. He was down like a felled ox, and he did not last the day. So James Donnelly was in, accused of murder, and rightfully so. So he, the, the, the constables came to arrest him, and he skedaddled. He was like, no, no, I don't want to take my punishment. I, I was in the wrong. I, I killed this guy, but I really, really don't want to get jail, go to jail or get killed for this. So mm-hmm. James goes into hiding. 
two years. Interesting thing, a little footnote about this, is that Patrick Farrell actually had a son that James and Johanna Donnelly adopted. Oh. They adopted the son of this guy that James had just killed and raised him to adulthood. They raised him as a member of their family. Wow. So, interesting little point there. Yeah. So James goes into hiding. And the constables go round to the houses on the Roman line, you know, every couple of weeks or so, and they, they knock on the door and they're like, hey, y'all seen James Donnelly? And everyone's like, nope. <laughs> His neighbors <laughs> all covered for him. <laughs> and like, no, James, no, no, he's not, I haven't seen him in months. Oh, no, he's, he's, I have no idea where he is. <laughs> but, a sharp-eyed neighbor would have been able to tell that the Donnelly fields were still being worked by two people, one of them who was much shorter than the other one, but they were both in dresses. James oh. was hiding in plain sight. He was wearing ah. oh, one wow. of Johanna's dresses <laughs> working on the fields. This really is a hell of a story. <laughs> yeah. is. And we know that he stuck around because during those two years, James and Johanna's final child was born, a little girl named Jenny. So he wasn't too far from home. <laughs> yeah, so he, he spent the first winter hiding in neighbors' barns. And uh, when when he could, he, he sat at the neighbor's tables, but that wasn't very often. He was usually relegated to hiding under hay and barns and keeping warm with the horses and everything. So during the, the very, the, the, during the summer of the second year, he's looking forward to the second winter in Canada on the frontier. And he's like, man, I don't want to go through this again. I really don't. So he turns himself in. So he is, he goes to the trial. He's he's accused of Patrick Farrell's murder, and he is sentenced to be hanged on September seventeenth, eighteen fifty nine. Johanna freaks out. Johanna's a very strong willed woman. She's faced with raising seven sons and a daughter on her own. She's uh. like, I am not doing this alone. So she single handedly <laughs> circulated a petition in the area. And got enough signatures and gave it to the court and said, please do not hang my husband. <laughs> so the court yeah. looked at all these signatures. And he, this, this is somebody who was well-respected enough to have people sign a petition. So he didn't get hanged. So they, yeah. they, right. the court decided, all right, well, re- reduce wow. your sentence. You'll just have to spend seven years in Kingston Penitentiary. Beats being hanged. <laughs> True. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but so so he, James goes off and he serves the sentence. During the seven years he is away, his seven sons grow up key wild. They all have their own personalities. Will is known as the smart one. Uh, John, his brother, was was known as the cute one. He was very genial. Um, some of the others really got into scrapes. Michael died in a bar fight when he was in his 20s. Uh, Tom was also known in, as getting into bar fights. He was, he was, the brothers just grew up running wild. So wow. <laughs> in the uh, early 
early 1860s, John, uh, James is released from prison, comes back to his homestead. Johanna has been keeping the homestead running this, this whole time. Her sons have been helping her. The family is reunited. Now comes the next part of the saga. It's called the stagecoach <laughs> feud. More? <laughs> there's more. <laughs> Wait, there's more. <laughs> so, during oh this Sometimes time that James has been away. Our fact really is stranger than fiction already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is why I love this story so much. So during the time that James has been away in prison, his sons have grown up and they are starting to look around for what they can do for a living. And they, they decide they're going to go into the stagecoach business. James was a stagecoach driver back in Tipperary, so he knows the drill. He's, he can give them advice on business practices and, and what to do. And Will is a, he's a renowned horse breeder. He, he is renowned for being like a horse whisperer. He's really good at training horses, and he takes good care of them. He, he absolutely adores horses. So getting into the stagecoach business is just perfect for Will. And he was the one who actually started the Donnelly Stagecoach line, May 25th, 1873. He ran okay. it with uh, Michael, John, and Thomas, his brothers. So the Donnelly Stagecoach line ran between London, Lucan, and Exeter. And pretty soon, within just a few months, it had grown so much in popularity that it was rivaling the government stage that had been formed in 1838. Wow. And this was in 1873. Mm-hmm. So they got real popular real fast. Yeah. So they had competition. They had a rival stagecoach line called the Hawkshaw Line. In October 1873, the Donnelly Stagecoach Line was started the end of May in 1873. And by October, mm-hmm. uh, Hawkshaw was out. He's like, I can't, I, I can't compete with this line anymore. So he sold his line to Patrick Flanagan. So they, it was basically the Donnelly Stagecoach versus the Flanagan and Crawley stage. And wow. this is where things started getting violent there were stagecoach attacks. The lions would attack each other. They would run the other stages off the road. They would sabotage wheels and axles. They would injure horses. They would kill horses. They would burn down Jeez. barns. And wow. the Donnelly started being blamed for everything. They were so successful and people were so jealous that they started getting blamed for everything. Now, Johanna herself was noted I said she was a battle axe she was noted to uh, swear at the police often some constable passed her in the town and and she didn't like the looks of his face and she would just cuss him out especially a guy named (laughs) Constable James Carroll this will be important later okay now the stagecoach feud eventually died down there were hard feelings but eventually fizzled out so um, the other thing about James Donnelly is that he he was a staunch Roman Catholic, but unlike many of the other Catholics in the area, he did not hate the Protestants. A lot of Catholics did. They they transplanted that that feud over from Ireland, uh-huh. 
But James was like, there are people just like us. It's cool. As a matter of fact, when there was an Episcopalian church built in uh, in uh, Biddulf, he contributed money to build this Episcopal church. Now, in June 1879, there was a, a pastor of the St. Patrick's Church, which is where the Donnellys attended church. His name was Father John Connolly. He started railing from the pulpit about how the Protestants are ruining our town and we should just run them out of town. And John Donnelly came up to this guy and said, look, if you're going to spew hate like that from your pulpit, my family and I are going to go to another church. They started going to church in London. They just left St. Patrick's and said, we're not going to listen to this, this hate. Mm-hmm. So John Connolly, Father John Connolly, started something called the Peace Society in Biddulph, which was the biggest misnomer that you could ever imagine. <laughs> this Peace Society <laughs> was basically set up to annoy, to, 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 to bully the Protestants. And he put this book <laughs> on the way out of church, and he had all the families in the parish sign this book saying that they would join the Peace Society just to bully rag the Protestants. And the Donnellys <laughs> refused to sign. They were like, we're not going to do it. There was an offshoot of the Peace Society called the Vigilance Committee. And in August 1879, they started meeting at the Cedar Swamp Schoolhouse. Now, the this offshoot of the Peace Society was even worse. They were even more violent. Most of the violence, the burglaries, the, the holdups, the arson, the beatings, late nights coming home from bars, all of this violence was mostly not the Donnellys. It was mostly these guys that were involved in the Vigilance Committee. So Wow. They, they were being blamed for stuff that they weren't doing. It was the, it was the peace society that was doing all this. Just ridiculous. <laughs> so the final Jeez, straw. <laughs> the final straw in all of this was an arson case. I told you we we're going to love these nicknames. There was a guy named Patrick <laughs> Grouchy Ryder. The Grouchy <laughs> Ryder's barn burned to the ground one night. All of the Donnellys had alibis. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 daughter had gotten married by that point, so she had moved away. Um, all of the boys were at a wedding, and James and Johanna were at home. So their alibi wasn't as rock solid as the boys were. So James and Johanna, these 60-plus-year-old couple, were accused of setting fire to Grouchy Rider's barn. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> And Grouchy himself admitted that the only reason he accused them is, he said, we've been neighbors for 30 years, and the only reason I actually accused them is because everybody else is accusing him of stuff. So I thought, you know, hey, why not? Sure. <laughs> so Father Connolly gets up on his pulpit, and he starts railing, and he says, evil has fallen among the community, and he gives a reward of $500 for the detection of the wicked persons. So that sets the stage for this violence to absolutely boil over. So Right. <laughs> now we've got money involved. The, the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Follow the money. 
So um, the plan is, the plan is for the members of the vigilance committee to visit the Donnelly cabin and go in and string up all the men by their necks until they confess their crimes against the community. This is kind of a vague plan. This is kind of (laughs) fully. This is subject to change. (laughs) At a moment's notice, this has room for tweaking, shall we say. So on on the morning of February 3rd, James Donnelly is sitting at his kitchen table, and he's composing a letter to the lawyer in London who is going to represent their case. His name is Edmund Meredith. Now, he writes, this let- he writes all the facts down in this letter, and he says, Grouchy has been our neighbor for 30 years, and we have never mm-hmm. had any trouble with him, and there's absolutely no evidence that we set fire to Grouchy's barn. And he- <laughs> this is a quote. It says, He said, it seems hard to see a man and a woman over 60 years of age dragged around as laughingstock. He's putting his case very plainly to this lawyer, just setting it out. This is what happened. We need your help defending ourselves. So the plan is that they're going to take a wagon to London the next day. They have a neighbor kid, uh, Johnny O'Connor who's about 12 years old, but he is over at the Donnelly's pretty often. He's helped, he's been there before. He, when they go out of town for something like this, he cares for mm-hmm. their livestock. He's there to feed the pigs, feed the horses, let them out in the morning, stuff like that, just care for the stock. Okay. So about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, James Donnelly and James Jr. come home with the wagon, picking up Johnny O'Connor to stay overnight at the Donnelly's. And then John um, comes, John goes over to Will's house, which is in Wayland's Corners, about five miles away. About 10 o'clock, there's this fellow named Jim Feely, and he's been friends with the Donnelly's for years. So he stops over about 10 o'clock in the evening, and he, his, ostensibly he's there just to say hello. But what he's really there for is to do reconnaissance, to see who is there and mm-hmm. who's, who's in the house, because he's in on this vigilance committee. So 10 o'clock, the Donnellys are basically getting ready for bed. So Jim Feely doesn't stay very long. He just takes a look around and says goodbyes and leaves. So over at Wayland's Corners, about five miles away, Will, John, and a friend of theirs, Mike Hogan, Stay up until about 1 o'clock in the morning. Will's wife, Nora, is pregnant, so she goes to bed about 9 o'clock. The guys stay up talking late till about 1 in the morning. So, at the Donnelly cabin, about 1 o'clock in the morning, 35 guys are at the Cedar Swamp schoolhouse getting all liquored up. <laughs> they finally decide it's time. They finally decide it's time to make their move. So they go to the Donnelly cabin. Constable James Carroll, remember him? Getting cussed Mm -hmm. out by Johanna regularly? He's first into the cabin. He comes in very quietly. uh, James Carroll and, or I'm sorry, James Donnelly and uh, Johnny O'Connor, the the 12-year-old kid, are asleep Mm -hmm. in the front bedroom. Um, Johanna is in another bedroom. Bridget 
Donnelly, their cousin from Ireland, is upstairs in her bedroom. Tom is in the back bedroom off the kitchen. James Carroll comes in very quietly. He goes into the back bedroom where Tom is sleeping. He puts handcuffs on him, then wakes Uh. him up. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Gets him out of bed, frog marches him into the kitchen. The kerfuffle starts, and that wakes up <laughs> James and Johnny O'Connor. And James tells Johnny to stay where he is. He said, I'll go out and see what's going on. So the guys, the attackers, don't know that Johnny's there. That's why we have this okay. eyewitness testimony. So James comes into the kitchen, sees James Carroll with Tom in handcuffs, and James' first words are, what have you got against us now? (laughs) And Tom kind of tilts his head over to the constable and holds up his hands in handcuffs, and he says, he thinks he's smart. So James (sighs) James is in the kitchen. He starts asking the constable what in the world is going on. This wakes up Johanna. And Johanna comes into the room. (laughs) Tom is already in there. And Bridget realizes there's something going on. So she comes downstairs to see what's going on in the kitchen where all this noise is going on. All of a sudden, all of the rest of the 35 guys storm the house with pitchforks (laughs) and shovels and rakes. And they start beating people. Uh, James is the first to fall. He gets a shovel to the side of the head. The dog is just losing his mind. The dog is barking and just carrying on. The dog gets killed with a shovel to the head. Tom makes it all the way out the front door with his hands still cuffed. And he makes it all the way out the front door, and there's somebody out at the front door, outside the front door, waiting for him. He gets a pitchfork through the chest and is driven back into the kitchen and falls to the floor, and the pitchfork is is, is rested from his chest. Somebody says, hit that fellow with a shovel and break his head open. So that's how Tom is finally dispatched, by having his head split open with a shovel. Um, Bridget (laughs) races up the stairs. Johnny races up the stairs after her. And either she was too panicked to know who Johnny was or just didn't even know he was there because she gets to the top of the stairs, gets to the bedroom, slams the door in Johnny's face. And Johnny's like, oh, crap, what now? So he runs back downstairs (laughs) and he hides under the bed. And he Uh. can see the guys walking around. Mm-hmm. And the after everybody's well, – well, Johanna was still alive. She was not conscious that Johanna was still alive. And the two of the guys follow Bridget up the stairs. They come back down about five minutes later, and the constable says, well, and the guys say she's not going to be talking to anybody. They killed her, uh, too. Wow. And they dragged, dragged her body down to the kitchen and poured coal oil all over the house, including on the bed under which Johnny was hiding. Oh, no. And then lit the house on fire and walked away. Wow. Johnny waited as long as he possibly could, and Mm -hmm. then he he was like, man, i got to get out of this house. So he crawls out from under the bed, and the first step he takes into the kitchen, he steps 
on Johanna's body and she moans. That's the only reason we know she was still alive when the fire oh. started. Oh, wow. So he crawls over the bodies <laughs> through the smoke and races to the neighbor's house. And he's barefoot. He's barely got his nightshirt on. He doesn't have a coat on. It's February. And he pounds on the door to the neighbors to let him in. And they finally let him in. And he's like, the Dudleys are all murdered and their house is on fire. And the, the neighbors take one look down the road and see the, the smoking, the, the ruins of the house and it's in flames. And they're like, no, we're not going to talk about that. You can come inside and get warm, but we're not going to talk about that. Nope. Wow. Don't want to get involved. Yeah, really. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, this mob. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, this mob has moved five miles down the road to Wayland's Corners. Clubfoot Will was generally acknowledged as being the smartest of the Donnelly boys. So he was the one who was the most dangerous. He had been educated. He was very, very intelligent. And he was intelligent enough to know that he, that people saw him as a threat. So he and John, his brother, and Mike Hogan and Nora had all gone to bed. Nora had gone to bed earlier. And there was a double bed, and it was pushed up against the wall. Nora was six months pregnant at the time. And she was sleeping on the outside of the bed, not next to the wall. So about 1 o'clock in the morning, Will comes to bed, and he's like, shove over. I want to get into bed. And Nora's like, no, I'm not leaving the warm spot to roll over into the cold spot. Climb over me and you take the cold spot, which yeah. probably saved Will's life. That, that little conversation there probably saved Will's life. Because wow. a wow. couple hours later... <laughs> This just the, 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 the circumstances of the story are just amazing. About 2 o'clock in the morning, the mob <laughs> arrives in Wayland's Corners. They're calling for Will. They're yelling outside his house, Will, Will, come out. And they start yelling, fire, 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 trying to get Will to come out. They go into his stables. You know how I said Will loved horses. They bring out his prized stallion, and they beat it to death hoping that the screams of the stallion will bring Will Uh out to see what's going on. Wow. All four adults wake up. John Donnelly is the one that goes to the door because Will has to climb over Nora. And John Mm -hmm. says, no, 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 stay back. It's not, it's you that they want. So John goes to the front door, opens the door, and gets a chest full of buckshot. Uh, he gets shot in the chest and in the groin, and he the femoral artery is hit. He hits the floor. They, Nora tries to drag him into the kitchen, but he's too big for her. So Nora and Mike Hogan together drag John into the kitchen. Nora grabs a, a little stump of blessed candle and folds it into John's hand. He's dead within five minutes. He bleeds wow. out on the kitchen floor. And the mob is still milling around the house, still calling for Will to come out. And Will and Mike and Nora are just huddled on the kitchen floor next to John, who is dead. And they, mm-hmm. just, they, they just wait for the mob to decide that they've had enough and to go. 
And after a couple hours, three hours, they waited while the mob milled around and finally decided they had enough. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Well, I, yeah. I, I love, I and, love that you... you you bring stories that yeah. somehow I've never heard. <laughs> and I know we're, I know we're running out of time. It's tragic, but it's <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It's just crazy. So I know we're running out of time. So I will wrap this up. Right. There were six men tried. James Carroll was one of them. Uh, James Ryder, Thomas Ryder, Grouchy's brother, um, John Kennedy, these, the, the names I've just said, James Carroll, James Ryder Jr., and John Kennedy, were people that Will saw. He could identify them by sight, and so could Johnny O'Connor. These were eyewitnesses to the slaughter. And all the, all the guys that were accused backed each other up. They all gave each other alibis. Wow. Um, one, ju- one juror, there was a preliminary trial. One juror said he wouldn't have convicted even if he'd seen the killings happen himself. Another didn't want to convict wow. just because of the testimony of a 13-year-old boy. So the wow. rest of the jurors were just afraid of the people involved. The press were at pains to present the Donnellys as smart I mean, Will and Patrick, Will, Will and 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 uh, John, and Tom and all these all these Donnelly boys, they were really not to blame. And Will was intelligent; he was well educated. They were the press were painting Will and the Donnellys as the good guys, and Patrick and Carol and the others as a bunch of envious, dangerous backwoodsmen. So the press really yeah. leaned into this choosing side sort of thing. So that scared the jurors off. They're like, man, if we convict these guys, they're going to come after us. So uh, it right. ended up with a hung jury. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and so James wow. Carroll, they, they, after the preliminary trial, they had the actual trial. James Carroll, the constable, was tried first because he was first into the cabin and he was the one actually accused of murdering James Donnelly. So if he had con- if he had been convicted, then the other five guys would have been tried. But he did not get convicted. There are several reasons for this. Um, Johnny O'Connor was still testifying. He was he was holding his own in the witness box. He was he was really. This is a 13-year-old kid, and he's really doing a great job telling his story and sticking to his story. But his house got burned down. And all this stuff and all this antagonistic reaction to the trial, the O'Connell's house was burned down. And his mother went to the courts and said, hey, can I please have some money because our house burned down? (laughs) So people said, well, because she asked the courts for money, she can't be trusted. So so we're going to discount the the testimony of her son. So, yeah, so James Carroll was found not guilty, and the rest of them, they all walked. No one was ever tried. No one was ever convicted for the murder of five people. Wow. 
What a story. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, you know, it really, yeah. that's, that's insane. And, you know, I got, I got to ask, I, yeah, I know we are, we are running out of time, but I got to ask, where <laughs> do you even find this stuff? I, I, I <laughs> submerge myself. I'm serious. This is what we do. We're always researching stuff like this, and you still find stuff that I have never even heard of. Yeah. Hardly <laughs> <teaching it up. laughs> well, I, I, I read a lot of ghost stories, and there, there are ghostly manifestations associated with this story. And I started doing research. I'm like, hey, February 3rd, I can put this in Days of the Dead. This is going in my calendar book. This is mm-hmm. awesome. So then I, I got so involved in the story. And there are have actually been several books, the Bradley case. Really? Yes, and they're very no fine idea. books indeed. Yeah, so so that's that's that was that's more valuable cool. to to get the details one, of with this. Yeah. Oh, that's that great. Was really. one of the yeah. most interesting stories I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I just Listen, fell in love with this story. It's it is so fascinating. It's so you tragic, can't, you can't it's find so yourself off of it. Exactly. You do this for this is what you do. You're you're you've got things like this up the yin yang. So that said, <laughs> tell our listeners tell our listeners where they can hear more about you and what you do and um yeah. More of these crazy <laughs> stories. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well you can always visit me at Sylvia Schultz.wordpress.com. That's S H U L T S. And as a matter of fact, I have a wonderful story that I am going to be posting for Thanksgiving. I have a an ancestor that came over on the Mayflower, uh, George Sewell, mm-hmm. and one of his descendants, another Sewell relative, was instrumental in. Um, there was a Cheyenne uprising that he he was in the army and he was ordered to burn this village and he refused. Oh. He he was very very interested in the rights of Native Americans and after refusing to burn this village he was assassinated on the street a couple months later. But while he was in the oh, army wow. he he pulled some shenanigans that I found out about that are just absolutely fantastic stories, and I am going to be sharing those on the blog, on the WordPress site, in honor of my Sewell ancestor, in honor of Thanksgiving, because he was so involved in Native American rights. Oh, great. So All right. Be on the lookout for that. To it. <laughs> it involves me. WordPress.com, correct? Yep. That is exactly right, yes. And you can find uh, links to the books there. You can find links to Lights Out, my own true ghost story podcast, and all sorts of fun stuff on that WordPress site. All right. Well, it is, as always, a very macabre pleasure having you on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I know I raced through that, and I'm sorry, but there's just so much to share. So thank you guys for allowing me to come on the show. Oh, you bet, you bet. You're always welcome, mm-hmm. and I always do feel some bad for laughing at these poor people's misfortunes, but at the same time, I can't help it. It's just so unbelievable. I think that's just my natural yeah. response. 
I don't think yeah. I'm WordPress.com for more. Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of good stuff. So thank you, Sylvia, for being on. And thank yeah, you, everybody, thank for you. listening. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams. Thank you for listening. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.